run into the ground. We're back. Another week. Another great guest. We got a scene historian, author of uh, Where Are Your Boys Tonight, Chris Payne on the pod. What's up, Chris? What up? What up? Maybe we'll find the boys tonight. Maybe. I feel like we've been we've been really running the gamut of uh, of the, the the current music writers. So it's only natural. We've only brought up your book. I would say easily a dozen times on this podcast. So, Andrew has not been able to shut up about it, uh, and nonstop. This and and um, meet me in the bathroom. The two the two big books in Andrew's life this last year. Sick. I mean, that was the book that basically inspired me to write this. Oh, there we go. Uh, first things first. First things first. How much do you hate the moldy peaches? <laughs> yeah, there we go. What what are your thoughts on the moldy peaches? Can, do we vibe or not? <laughs> the moldy the, the band from a like the silly folk band, a goofy folk band from Meet Me in the Bathroom. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh I never got into them. I was kind of but I was happy when they popped up in Meet Me in the Bathroom because I had no idea they were so friendly with the strokes. And I feel like you need one of those little surprises to get into a book like that where you're just expecting like okay, it's going to be the strokes at Interpol and Kings of Leon. And yeah, 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 it's gonna be all these garage rock bands. It's like, oh, moldy and, peaches are here. That's cool. And, and they're then, dressing you know, up like, and like then you silly... and then you find out that it's the moldy peaches that kicked off the entire movement, essentially. No, <laughs> then, I think everyone really was. I think that book was very clear that there's like tens of people now who know who Jonathan Fire Eater is who didn't <laughs> know who they were before. Also, like, what a good name for a band. If we can Jonathan Fire Eater is great. Moldy peaches is not so much. Yeah, uh, we're 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 the. Um, Oh, what did I mention on the Diego episode when we talked about Jeffrey Lewis? The uh instead of like the anti anti social social club or whatever, we're the anti anti folk folks over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I meant to say was uh it, it you know, I'd be remiss not to mention it on this podcast is the fact that you're from New Jersey and you're currently recording from your childhood bedroom. Would that mean you're currently in New Jersey at the moment? Yeah, Colonia, New Jersey, uh, sitting in my Shit. childhood bedroom, home for the holidays with my family. This Wait, is where I did yeah. actually a bunch of where the interviews that? for my book, sitting right here. Uh, it's uh, Colonia, New Jersey. It's a uh, Woodbridge Township, uh, kind of just smack dab in the middle of a map of New Jersey. So you know what that means. We got Jersey Boys on the pod. <laughs> it's actually been a minute. It it's always, it's, there's always something special when we got three Jersey Boys on the, on the pod, though. So... That's uh, you know, the the energy right there, right off the bat. You got the full Simpsons character poster in the back, purchased from Fye, no doubt. Uh, <laughs> That's a Spencer's gift. Childhood Simpsons are great. <laughs> mine, mine is mostly untouched as well, which is fantastic. I would now. I just want to ask what the fuck your parents are doing. I can't wait to get my kid out of here, reclaim that bedroom. She's two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm counting down the minutes. Yeah, oh, shout out to man. my parents for leaving all this stuff up. Well, actually, they're they're in a couple years probably going to be like moving elsewhere. So some of the stuff has been taken down. So it's not as like I used to be like a real posters guy. Mm. So there was a lot of stuff all around on the wall. So it's now the uh, the more minimalist version of the childhood. Yeah, I, I should say that the Simpsons poster is framed behind you. That's the adult the adult <laughs> yeah, distinction yeah, yeah. there. Uh, yeah, I love that. It's like, take down the three dozen posters you have and frame six of them. And then, then you're, you've upgraded. Get a bed frame so people on Twitter aren't mad at you. And you're, you're golden. 
Pretty much, yeah. Just got a couple pennants up on the wall. Oh, one super 90s thing I have. Do you remember these things? The uh, These things that they call them magic eyes? Oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. do I? From like the mid, like I remember going into stores in the mall where there would be like an entire setup of like dozens of them. And a like large, some of them would be. A large plot point in the movie Mall Rats, actually. Right, 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 yeah. 90s, 90s mall culture was revolved around the, the magic eye. Have magic you ever solved eye. that one? What is what is that magic eye image? Uh, it's it's called Hunters of the Sea. That's Ooh. actually like uh, the title of it on the bottom of the uh, underneath the design, and it's uh, I haven't looked at that probably in like twenty years, but it's sharks. Nice, nice, hell yeah! Oh, I love it. Child, we should just have a a Patreon episode of childhood bedrooms, Andrew. What's your childhood bedroom looking like these days? Now there is zero way of knowing that I have ever set foot in that room. <laughs> My mother waited zero minutes after I moved out to like really? reclaim that space. Oh yeah, Oof. I guarantee you. I mean, I also left at like seventeen, but like, unlike you, who stayed at home till he was forty. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm. I'm not even kidding you. I'm sure that by the time I had even like before I had even landed in Arizona, where I moved, not to be a Diamondbacks fan, I think uh, <laughs> she had already changed it. I think I think my parents have just always kind of had that idea that this whole photography thing might not pan out, and they know the second that they t- break down my room to turn it into something else, will be the day I'll be moving back in. <laughs> so, you know, there's always that. But Chris, how you doing? <laughs> Good, yo. I could go on with this. I was uh, me, we, me, my mom, my dad, and my brother were looking for something to do two days ago when I was home. We were all together. And I was like, let's just go to Menlo Park Mall. Let's just oh, like, go to the Menlo Park Mall. Classic. Yes. It was great. I mean, you? some some malls have unfortunately gotten a bit depressing. Oh, yeah. Uh, in, in the Jeff Bezos age. But happy mm. to report Menlo Park Mall in Edison, New Jersey. Still, still going strong. Popping. Uh, Holidays, shopping, popping. I'm trying to think in that area. Eatontown Mall, not doing so well, I don't yeah. think. Menlo Park, uh, I think Scott from Dad's worked at the Menlo Park American Apparel. Now imagine the vibes in that place. Oh, I remember that. It was a huge deal because that was like the first suburban location to get Mm -hmm. an American Apparel. And also they got an urban for one of like the first urbans that was not in a city. It was the hipster hipster Jersey Mall. Yeah. Just like the Cherry Hill Mall. Cherry Hill Mall had both of those things. Yep. Yep. Cherry Hill Mall, I think, would be the Menlo Park equivalent of South Jersey, I would say. Yeah. And uh, I gotta say, my... I'm trying to think the last time I was there, but the Quaker Bridge Mall, which was my local mall mm, growing bad up. Bad mall. Bad mall. Never never a great mall. It got better, but then the Sears went out of business, Ugh, and the JCPenney you know now down, has, like, different hours than the rest of the mall you know how that goes and uh, the, the only thing keeping it alive is there's an apple store in there uh f- actually i have a good story um joe morrow from the early november um and a, and a bunch of folks all got together and we tried to draw the floor plan of the cherry hill mall from memory okay um i think we made it most of the way it was pretty good Malls yeah. are important, man. They are. It, they're, we're running out of, uh, what do they call them, third spaces? Mm. The, the space between uh, work and home, that third, that third mm. place. And yeah, I was, 
I, I guess I did have a mall hanging era. I think I think that was an important spot for a little bit. I didn't, I'm trying to think of what. I went to know. the mall yesterday, you guys. It okay, was cool. really? It was what? fine. I had Chick Fil A for dinner. Ooh, classic. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I used to I used to back in my scene kid days. I'd I'd go. I knew a girl. Uh, who worked who at... developed crime scene photos. <laughs> fuck yeah, exactly. that's rips. Uh, no, there was a girl who worked at... Fuck, what was the brand? I don't know. I used to buy, like, my girl jeans, like, off the rack at at that store. And, uh... Oh, my God. I forget the name of the store. It was it was a classic classic move, though. Chris, I remember you... my friend... Sorry. I was going to say, my, my, my friend who uh, got Girl Jeans a lot, Forever 21 was his place. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I knew, I knew a kid who bought him at Wet Seal, and that just seems fucked up. Uh, <laughs> hi, hi. I was a former Wet Seal employee. Wait, so, were you really? Uh, what a cursed, yeah, a cursed location. Um, it was great. I remember my first day of work was the day that the, uh, the Saves the Day video for... Um, What's that song that was on in Reverie? Anywhere with you. That one. The video was on the uh, the overhead thing. It was great. There were Uggs there. It was so fun. The yeah, it's. Uh, I miss having jobs that paid me nothing, but like I could just hang. Yeah, that that's always been my vibe. Like, Chris, especially... what do you do? Do you hang now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a real like watch the game kind of guy. I'm a watch the game hangs kind of guy. Watch the game hang. That's my uh, favorite kind of hangs. You, Dan you is and not. Dan is not a watch the game kind of hang guy. No. What's the last game you watched? Um. So I'm a huge Miami Dolphins fan. And oh my god, my a... cousin's a big Miami Dolphins fan. Yeah. How does that happen? And he's a he grew up in Vineland, the worst part of New Jersey. <laughs> Oh, Hangar 84, man. Oh, my God. One of the worst venues of all time that I went to maybe more than most places. That place was Area 51 themed? Uh, I think it was Area 51 themed before it became a venue. (laughs) Anyway, how did you become a big Dolphins fan? Uh, I just, like, was really into sharks when I was a kid. And I was like, oh, this team, I was, like, speaking of football team, I was like, uh, uh, Dolphins, the closest thing to a shark of all these teams. So, you know. Let Dolphins me, fan. Here's a I here's a question. Um, is your dad a sports guy? Oh, huge, huge Eagles fan. He was a season ticket holder back to the early seventies. Him and my my uncle and my grandma all on that so, side. So was he upset with you growing up that you didn't care about the same teams? No, no. He was he was glad I was getting into football, and I I think he he would have been upset if I was like a Dallas or Giants fan. But sure. Dolphins yeah, is yeah, like yeah. you know Dolphins and Eagles. There's no yeah, beef. Yeah. Sure, See, not yet. My my dad was not a a watch the game guy, so I didn't grow up watching here's, the game. Here's what I think is wrong <laughs> with the Dolphins game. Tell me if you agree. Tua doesn't run. I mean, like Tua should run. Tua's got to watch out for his injuries, and he's just not that fast. Yeah, it's I like just you, think... you kind of expect him to be fast when he, when he from just glimpses of him but then when you actually like see him like break contain and run outside the pocket you're like oh dude's not I just, fast i think they've got a great offensive line and it do- <sighs> it just doesn't make any sense why you know what i mean i don't know he is he is uh i think last year was his mvp year and it got fucked up by that injury but yeah yeah that was see, a sad one my my favorite turn that andrews made lately 
because uh, before he was a watch the throne guy and now he's a watch the game guy watch the throne but um so andrew's like a, become is it a throwing up reference <laughs> no andrew's andrew's become sports dad where he, he was a big baseball man and now he's he's become but before my very eyes i'm gonna watch whatever is on tv sports Anything. related if there's if there's a score involved, you would better believe I'm no, watching. It, yeah, if there's sports betting involved here, <laughs> guilty. Chris, what are you? What you, what do you think sports betting is ruining professional sports? I mean, I'm just glad, honestly, to see more people get into it, cause more people to hang and watch the game with. But, but they're but they're, big... they're watching it in a different way. It doesn't matter. They are, they are for their like their parlays you, or whatever. Do you realize that the one of the greatest aspects of sports is just showing off and the, your uh, your ability to like analyze statistics in real time? Like it's the same thing. They're all you know what I mean. It doesn't matter what side of the what side of the proverbial. Yeah, but there there's a big difference between you rattling off parlays versus like the truly autistic baseball fan like writing box scores like, there's, I it do scratches both of a different those. part of the brain <laughs> damn i do both of those oh uh, how do you do you love putting that little backwards k and that little little square oh, yo are you kidding me if somebody watches a strike better believe i take pride in that backwards k <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's very funny because I've had a lot of friends who have shown who love betting more than sports, who have gotten really into sports through betting. But again, it's like they they like it's a different part of the game they're playing. Like they're they're not yeah, enjoying what? watching Chris, the game. Chris, what kind of bets you got going on? I just do fantasy because it's fun. I mean, the thing with betting on like big sports like NFL is like no one makes money off that shit. Like yeah, they're too good at setting spreads to. No, no one for any amount of time is gonna like get rich betting on football. Like it's just too hard. Like you're gonna lose money. Anyone, pretty much anyone who says like, "Oh, I like bet on football for a living," like they're probably lying or just losing lots of money. Um, I mean, the people so, who, well, you think you think some do? No, but I've I've thought a lot about. I mean, because this is an addict's brain, I think about <laughs> it a lot, and I'm like, I think if I was working. From a steady pool of cash that I could easily win enough to sustain a lifestyle. I think if I had a bank of 10, 10k, just just one I more could... bet, and I swear I'll I'll make it. No, I. You know what, Dan? <laughs> I think, especially recently. I mean, when I think about when I first started sports betting, and I would like it was like crumpling up a ten dollar bill and just tossing it behind me. You know what I mean? Like. I didn't know what I was doing, but I know much better what I'm doing now. I won a, I won a few hundo on a, on your Dolphins the other day. Which game was this? The uh, Jets game? I'm gonna tell Where they you. shut out the Jets? It might have been the shutout. It was. They've been really good at whenever they're favored, except for the they they whenever they favored. I believe they've won all but one game this year. They're like nine and one covering the spread. Oh yeah, the Jets game. Yeah, and this was a crazy parlay too, right? So, so Dolphins money line, um, uh, Raheem anytime touchdown score. Okay, he uh, got two. J- Jalen Waddle anytime touchdown score. Okay, um, Tua over two hundred eight 
4.5 passing yards. Uh, Raheem, 40-plus rushing. Waddle, 60-plus receiving. I mean, it was yeah. a long, it was a lot of legs, but, like, you knew all those guys were good for that. Yeah, that's one of those, you know, it's just a lot of things to happen, though. And just if it one is. of those things goes wrong, I mean, like, Waddle could have had a really good game, but if he doesn't get thrown that one deep ball, he doesn't score a touchdown. And, like, it's all that true. happens, basically, but you lose. Here's, here's what I want to know. Is, like... Do you think they settle for Cedric Wilson? What do you mean settle? Like, I I just I don't think he's I don't think he's a key part of that offense. Well, they signed him two years ago before they realized they could trade for Tyreek Hill. So he was brought in the team initially to be like the speedy number two opposite uh Waddle. And then when Tyreek Hill came into the equation, Wilson kind of got forgotten. So he's, you know. Right. He's a talented player, but he just doesn't get a lot of looks. Yeah. Because, I mean, he didn't even make 25 yards in that game. Dan, I'm so sorry. My the eyes look, are glazed over. You look like, why don't you pop a NyQuil and, and, and listen to the men <laughs> take, talk for a little bit? Take the night off again, yeah. <laughs> um, look, um, I think that if if history has shown us anything, that we're going to have a, uh, a Dolphins 49ers Super Bowl this year. Um, and I think... I think it's the Dolphins' year. I think uh, they're at least two scores up. Dan, what's that spread look like? <laughs> what's the run into the ground numbers here? Uh, I'm looking at our engagement, and everyone turned the podcast off 10 minutes ago. Oh, no. Um, All right, uh, go, go Birds. What else? <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, you, so you grew up in New Jersey. Uh, where you, are you going the shows in New Jersey? What was that looking like? Yeah, so... Jersey, I just keep thinking back like the book, how fortunate I was to be growing up that time with all the stuff that was going on in New Jersey venues that were really accessible. How how old are you? I'm thirty-five. Okay. Yeah. We're we're about the same age then. So uh there's a good chance we might have been at the same shows. There's so, a hundred percent chance you were both there's a really good chance because I grew up in, in Hamilton in central Jersey, right outside of, outside of Trenton. So so yeah, you were what what were your main venues what what were the hubs you were kind of regular going to shows at it was hamilton street cafe bloomfield avenue cafe starland ballroom um we were just talking about that actually um because we were talking about like because um recently what happened was the house of independence just flooded and we were talking about that one rain did you hear about that no, I didn't, but that's a shame. Oh, and it they're sucks. not they're they're not reopening either. What? It's, oh yeah. man, that's really a bummer. Yeah, huge, what? huge bummer. Uh, Fuck. So yeah, but we were talking about and I, I Hamilton Street was the one I couldn't remember, but there was that one rain probably fifteen years ago now, but the, it flooded Hamilton Street, Bloomfield Ave, and Starland. All that same weekend. And Hamilton Street and Bloomfield both closed permanently. And Starland was closed for like a year and a half for repair. So it's it's crazy, but yeah, Bloomfield Ave and Hamilton Street were iconic places for like a, a you know a smaller to mid range venue size. Yeah, they were places where they would do local shows a couple times a week. Where like mm-hmm. if you just formed a band, you could just go play there. It was you know it was you know that kind of a scene that open, and then there would be like shows usually like Friday or Saturday night where touring bands would come through. It would be like 
kind of like the lower bands on say like the like lower rungs of like the victory roster or fuel by ramen oh, yeah. roster or drive through roster and a couple of ba- bands like that would play with like a couple local bands so yeah having friends in bands those were always like the best shows where like you got to see your friend's band like first to five and then you saw like you know the uh the fancy you know touring band whose like debut you were psyched on who came through and like they were like the end of the night oh yeah what was what was the first band on a label you remember seeing i mean my first show was it wasn't a, like a small show it was a yellow card in the starting line so that those would have been yeah. the first bands on labels just trying to think of like when i was when i was going to like local shows what was the first that's a like, good question what was the first i mean i know the first band on a label that i ever saw and i ever played with was the jazz june mm, um, that's pretty cool they're like Best band ever. I mean, my my first like concert was H two O touring on Go, which is like the worst record of all time. Uh, but Newfound Glory on self titled, uh, RX Bandits on Progress, and River City High, which was that's sick. fun. That's uh, definitely like that. That Chad Gilbert and Friends drive through exactly era. Yeah, and that was at uh, Electric Factory back in the day. Fun, wild, and then yeah canonically with the podcast that was the night i got the doghouse record sampler with three river city high songs and three piebald songs that altered Um, the course of my history and then hey you were a part of it um (laughs) so i always like the melody bar a lot the melody bar i never went to the melody bar um melody bar is great what's the other one court tavern court tavern yeah did you ever get a chrome Chrome, it, it it was a thing when I was, like, first getting into the scene. I never went there. I was, like, close to going shows there a couple times. This was when I was younger, yeah. and it was, like, get, getting a ride was so much more complicated. So I'm pretty sure I was, like, oh, I might go to see Finch at Chrome or whatever. But, no, I remember it Chrome closed. with, like, a K? Yeah. 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 That's and, a yeah, weird someone, room. I there, saw... There was a string of venues that got shut down due to, like, affiliation activity if if Get you catch the here. drift oh yeah yeah someone <laughs> got shot someone got shot outside of chrome and probably the craziest one was uh do you remember club deep in asbury and this is like peak asbury being a shithole but also having like a dozen music venues all within like a quarter mile or you know like a square mile of each other club deep is it's now the langosta lounge right on the boardwalk it was right across from Stone Pony, but I remember seeing one of the craziest shows. It was the John Bonet, Heavy Heavy Low Low, Number 12 Looks Like You, and Fear Before the March of Flames. And Fear Before the March of Flames, the singer immediately hung from like a fluorescent light ballast and just bent it in half and just shattered glass everywhere. And then picked up another stage light and just threw it against the back wall. <laughs> And then, this is why we can't have nice things. Uh, yeah. Then, <laughs> then security tried to cut the sound, and they kept playing. And then security tried to physically wrestle the microphone from the lead singer, who pushed him over the drum set. I love it. And then they started an all-out brawl with security to the point where one of them got tackled off the stage. They called in security from uh, from across the street at the Stone Pony. I still, to this day, have only seen Fear Before play two and a half songs. And uh, it was it was insane, but yeah, literally like a, a less than a year or so after that show, 
some affiliated dude told a guy wearing like a Leonard Skinner shirt with a Confederate flag on it to take his shirt off. Hell yeah, bro. Okay. To okay. the point where the kid was like, I don't know, I'm like 16. <laughs> I bought this shirt like at Kohl's, I'm know. sure. And uh, then the kid was like stomped out on the street to death <laughs> by like an adult to- hardcore man. To death? Oh yeah, he died. And then adult? some other kid took, some other like lower level affiliated person took the blame and went to jail for this guy. It's wow. crazy. This is all allegedly, of course. Support the scene, defend hardcore. (laughs) Defend hardcore. Yeah. (laughs) While then then that venue closed too, but it was it was I think around the same time that Chrome had their shit go down that closed them too. But there was there used to be some weird venues in New Jersey. Uh do you remember Obsessions? Oh yeah, I saw Paramore there and Paramore Obsessions? Yeah, man. Wow. I, I saw scary kids scaring kids there. Oh, that's that, that's another Obsessions band. Oh, five would have been probably. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Wasn't oh, it like yeah. a strip club at some point, too? Or is currently With a strip club? With a name club? like that, I can't imagine, <laughs> yeah, Daniel. It was wild. What a time. It looks so bizarre. I remember looking up that place on Google when I was working on the book, and it looks like the place that you would rent out for like a Sweet 16 now. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. just a parking lot in the middle of like, like Route whatever, like Route 9 or some shit like that. It just looks like... Like that one of those places. Oh, that's like pure. You know, pure and icon lounge or whatever, right in like Perth Amboy. I've I've literally shot bar mitzvahs there. And yeah, it's that same vibe. It's just like a rental space with like that really like terrible club furniture that's just meant to be yeah, like yeah. walked on and like hosed off. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the oh man, those those shows are so bizarre. But yeah, there there was oh the it's just bringing back to like the pay to play days. So much of that bullshit when I was like you know, back when I, I was in the band. I kind of respect that. Really? I respect that. Yeah, that. Uh, no, no. Merch cuts. I respect. Um, <laughs> Andrew just hates small businesses. I, I'll tell you and... what I love. I like. I like ticket fees. I really <laughs> like. Um, the, there's nothing that gets me harder than like an eight dollar bottle of water. I oh, gotta yeah. tell you, folks. I love it. I love the it. world for me. I was. I would have been at Woodstock '99 uh, <laughs> on the side of Woodstock. Yep. Oh man. Yeah. The, uh, um, the. Do you remember the main stage in Pompton Lakes? That was another real wacky place. No. That sounds vaguely familiar. It's very North Jersey. Uh, it's 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 a really cool little small town, but it's like up in the mountains of like central North Jersey. And I remember seeing uh, the second ever, or maybe the first ever, Bring Me the Horizon American show, where oh, wow. they were they were opening for the band Kitty, which is amazing. And their their drummer didn't even he like missed his flight, and they had a different drummer for that show. Yeah, it was fucking fucking nuts. And, and you listen to awful, awful shit. It's true. It's so true. Especially in like 2007. Absolutely. God. I'm so glad that I didn't know you then. You know, I'm barely glad I, I, was, I know you now. Yeah, yeah. If that was a different person kidding. back then. But yeah, well, um, so, yeah. What were Chris, what were the Andrew, Chris? You you've written a book. Otherwise, <laughs> you're gonna listen to every single show that Dan has ever gone to. <laughs> you wrote a book. I read it again in the past two days. Um, I long story short, I'm going to ruin it for everybody. Silent Majority started everything, and Band in a Bubble killed everything. Is that uh, 
Is that did I get the the book correctly? Yeah, no one needs to read the book now. You said it. <laughs> it's good. And um, how? Tell me about that interviewing process. Like, wh- like when did you when did you get the idea that you were going to do this? Like, what was sort of planning like? Give me give me the give me the goods. Yeah, so the book came about because I got laid off from my job. I was a staff writer at Billboard uh, for seven years. It was 2020, April. They were doing budget cuts with like the pandemic, and me and a bunch of other people got laid off. And I had always wanted to do this book because like a lot of this music was kind of my beat when I was at Billboard. I was like the alternative music and independent industry guy at Billboard. And I had like built up relationships with a lot of these bands after being like a super fan of them as a scene kid, as a teenager. So I, I wanted to do this book, especially after reading Meet Me in the Bathroom. Um, then a day after I got laid off, I get this email. And the, this, I remember it now. The subject line was just, hey, man. That was the subject of the email. And it's from, it says, just says, from Pete Wentz. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? I was like, this can't be real. Uh, because we, I had interviewed him a bunch, but we had never like, uh, shot the shit over email. It was always right. like through a publicist, you know, or a manager, you know? So I was just like, what the, and it was just him saying like, Hey, saw the news. Like he must've seen like, a, like tweets going around about people who got laid off. So he was like, you know, stay in touch would like love to work on something someday. Um, so that just turned into me asking him like, Hey, I've had, I want to do this book. Would you want to do an interview for it? And like, long story short, Pete was super generous with his time and, uh, getting, you know, getting that going was what really gave me the confidence that, yeah, I can do this. And, uh, Gabe Supporta, uh, of Midtown and Cobra Starship fame, he was the first interview for the book. And, uh, he was a really great connector with helping get a lot of these people together. Cause so much of this was like, I would interview someone. There's over 150 people interviewed in the book over a little over two years. It took to do that, do the, do the book. And so much of it was like interview is done. It's like, Hey, before you go, like, I would love to interview so-and-so like, do you think he would maybe be able to like uh, link, link us up? So, so much of it was kind of that, uh, that game of telephone. And yeah. And in the, in the acknowledgements, I list like the people who like, so many people helped, but in the acknowledgments at the end of the book, I list the people who like really, really helped. And Gabe was, you know, toward the top of that list. What I what I thought was really interesting is that I don't know if you like. <clears throat> there's a very strong narrative through it that, like, if I hadn't I, if I hadn't been there, I, I would think it was like made up. You know what I mean? Like all these pieces fit together so seamlessly that like, I like, it's so easy to, to draw all these lines between, you know, even what I listen to right now versus, you know, what I listened to when I was 16 or 17, you know? Yeah. I think what really helps is the, the era had this crazy coming together of underground punk and mainstream music that I didn't really have anything to compare it to at the time when I was like first getting into punk because like, you know, it was like the first, you know, getting into like fallout boy and like Oh three Oh four and MCR and Jimmy world and motion city soundtrack. It was like my introduction to the genre. Right. Um, looking back, the genre was in such a mainstream place, Mm -hmm. you know, but what allowed, I think to, to weave a narrative out of this was how 
first of all, you've got a lot of people who came from punk, so they're down to do interviews even when they get famous, rather than people who just sort of start off famous. So you, it's impossible. You just never to, have access to them. Yeah, right? their their entire life began with interviews. Like, yeah, and it's like so many people from this world, even like people like Wentz or Mikey Way, because they came from like the scene, they get it. So it's like when you, I think when you mentioned a project like an oral history, you know. I think they're a lot more into that usually than just like your run of the mill celebrities. But um yeah, like you were saying with like the narrative of this there's something about how, like you know, I, I never want to like overly romanticize like basement shows and underground stuff cuz I think that happens a lot and it's so easy to like run the risk of being corny when you you just like kind of just get oh my god Jeff Rickley's basement, like, this is how it started, and, like, MCR was there. But also, that's, like, what it was. Yeah. Right. Like, and there, there were so many, so many people who, like, went on to do big things who were just, like, seeing kids back then. So, the, uh, the, the, the whole, the whole, uh, lineage of it, in my head, it, it always kind of, in some ways, like, worked as, like, kind of like a book that was existing in my head before I sat down to work on it. Well, it's nice that yeah, everything does kind of fit a timeline, and and there is the ability to link like the connection of this show, then branching off into starting this and that. And it's just like you know, everyone jokes about like the Fugazi was like this show created a dozen other bands, and it's just this like whole spider web of of influence. But it is true that's how that works. It's pretty crazy. I I've definitely been to shows that have been so special that you're like somebody left here and you know what I mean? Inspired. Yeah. I'm sure everybody left here inspired. Yeah. And it's, it's cool to connect. I mean, I guess that's what makes it's going to sound really corny, but like the punk scene so special is like this shit does start in a basement, you know? And it, it's, it's something that is so accessible that, you know, you could, you could, stumble upon it accidentally and kind of like alter the rest of your life it's pretty pretty nuts yeah it's what happens when like the barrier to entry is basically nothing which we're just like if you and your friends have ideas and want to get something out there then write some songs learn how to play them and like we were saying about venues like hamilton street and bloomfield avenue for me growing up in that time those were the venues that were there where if you and your high school friends formed a band you you could just play a show it wasn't it, there was nothing more to it than that there was no like auditions or no like getting a booking agent or like a record label like, you could like with your friends just do this project and play a show there was no like parent signing a permission slip or like teacher driving you there which like trying to put myself back in like the mindset of like a 15 year old kid back then i think that was such a big thrill of it like being able, having the autonomy to do this stuff on your own without like a parent or guardian or teacher overseeing it that yeah. was really cool yeah and it's it and also i think being from new jersey just put you know all three of us in such a space where we had access to it so easily because the majority of it was all coming from this area you know, you think about the bands that came in New Jersey, Philly, Long Island were like the three major hubs. And 
the amount yeah, of like, stuff but that just major came out of hubs, the... major hubs of our area. I'm sure anybody who lives in Chicago would like, or Chicago adjacent would give you the same rundown of for you know champagne uh urbana you know what i mean like i think everybody has that right like chris did you like when you were going through this like at one point you had to be like oh okay like there was a scene everywhere and like these touring bands is what connected scenes right yeah but there were just some scenes that fostered a lot of really good bands sure and also were very connected whereas like for instance in the early goings of putting together the proposal and writing up what the chapters would be, I considered doing an L.A. scene chapter in, like, the first section of the book. Um, but I remember one of my early meetings with Gabe Saporta, before I was even working on the book, actually, when I was at Billboard, when I, like, kind of tossed the idea, and I was like, yeah, the, the beginning of the book, I'm going to introduce the scenes. It's going to be New Jersey, Long Island uh chicago suburbs and uh south florida and la and he's like yeah you shouldn't do la and i was like really <laughs> but like you know thrice and hello goodbye and say anything and something corporate and uh you know say sin but he was like nah bro like yeah like there were bands that came from there but it was all like very fractured there wasn't really like a coherent scene in la the way there was in uh in long island where it was all like christian mcknight and or also- uh, I mean, I, I, I guess I sort of get that because a lot of the, um, a lot of that LA scene seemed really, really dependent on the internet. Like, wouldn't have happened without the internet. Whereas, like, the, uh, you know, the Long Island and New Jersey and everything scene had been there since, you know, I mean, I don't know. The, if, the I, infrastructure was already built. It's so weird to think like how many layers back it goes, right? Like, I remember when I was first go- starting to go to sh- like I saw my first show. In like 1994. Hey, a, listen. Number one, no basements on the West Coast. That's that's a huge that, deterrent yeah. right oh, there. I guess that is. <laughs> they got garages out there. That people are doing garage shows and backyard shows. Mm. It's a different vibe. It's just like uh, people say comedy needs a low. It works better in a low ceiling room. You know, same same with punk music. That's a good way to put it. It's a really good way to put it. <laughs> No, it's not. Don't gas him up like that. <laughs> Don't gas him up. <laughs> Damn it, that's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think I think like New Jersey specifically, but Long Island alone was just like such a cultivator of like a, so much of what I listened to back in that day. And it was you know before the time I could drive myself to a show on Long Island, but. You know, just the fact that, like, Taking Back Sunday, Brand New, Matchbook Romance, Glassjaw, Crime and Stereo, like, they were all playing the same VFW halls, you know? And it's it's just crazy to think about all that stuff happening in such a accessible way. That, like, branched out to be as big as... I mean, yeah, like, same deal with, like, Midtown and, you know, all those other bands that, that branched out from there. It was crazy. Yeah, and like growing up in that era, like I went, my high school years were 02 to 06. And it just gives you like such a sense Same. of like yeah. pride, like fuck yeah, like my state is cool. Cause like if you go back to like other eras of punk, like yeah, like there were like some important bands that came from Jersey. But like I was just lucky that I went to high school in the era with Jersey was popping, you know? Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was pretty awesome. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, being the being the same age, it was like there was 
consistent spaces running where I knew I had a place to go every Friday or Saturday night. Mm. And I think that kept me out of a lot of trouble. I was a straight edge kid for a long time. And, you know, I definitely so owe that almost, to the music you scene. You almost still are? I almost still am. You're right. <laughs> Mentally, for sure. But yeah, it. I mean, I'm a Jersey defender forever. And uh, what's there I mean, to just, defend? What's there to defend? Listen, you'd be oh, not so much anymore because everyone from New York is now moving to New Jersey. So, oh yeah, oh yeah. The, those, Anybody uh, who has anything bad to say about New Jersey has just never been there. It's true. They're not willing to experience it. But yeah, it's uh, now everyone. Uh, a lot of my photo clients now all have the same story. They all moved here two years ago and had a kid. Every single one. But. So the secret's out on New Jersey. But uh, the music scene, though, it is crazy to think that I know people who like went to high school with the people in My Chemical Romance, and they were all just like, oh, yeah, they were just like, the biggest dorks in, in our school, <laughs> you know? <laughs> just like total comic book nerds and like D&D nerds, and uh, then they became like one of the biggest bands ever. And yeah, I mean, so like, how did you find all this stuff back then when you we're going to local shows. How did this branch off into the band you then covered for the book? Yeah, it was, uh, just falling in with a group of friends. Um, I, I was like a sports kid in like elementary school, middle school. And I, I still kept at it. Like I played in a street hockey league all through high school, but like, I, I realized like I wasn't like good enough to be like a high school football player. You know, I had played, um, like popcorn or football all through like younger years. So I was like, uh just sort of looking for like a new thing like a new crowd of kids and a couple kids who i was already friends with were in into getting into this music they were like a couple years ahead of me being into you know bands like something corporate and um uh you know all of, like all of what we've been talking the, about the drive through boy drive yeah. through scene yeah you know like all that stuff like all the stuff in the book like you know, like Paramore and Panic aren't around yet, but you know, like all the, uh, all of like your Motion City soundtracks and My Chemical Romances of the World. So yeah, it was kind of like a mix of like the the punk scene kids and also like the kids who did theater and were in like honors and AP classes, but like the honors AP kids who also like did cool shit and went to shows and didn't just like study as their one thing they did after school so it's kind of like a mix of those kids and um what really inspired me a lot in those years was uh i had a good, a good buddy of my mind of, of mine uh, his name's greg scalera and uh he played keys in a band called moraine who were like a jersey scene band and uh they were close to being assigned to drive through for a couple years they had a really solid jersey following their shows at like places like hamilton uh bloomfield avenue cafe were always great um like they would open for a lot of like national touring bands like they opened for paramore and went on like a mini tour with paramore my buddy greg got to be friends with them he would just be like chatting with Haley on the phone when we would just be like at his house or someone's house playing uh, like guitar hero and it'd be like oh greg's just talking to Haley. It, it was just like wild it was just like oh wow like my friends are making you know their bands are legit and they're making moves and it's, you know, like they, they open for gym class heroes, my, my buddy's band also. And like, I remember it was a bill at stone pony with Emery gym class heroes and Gatsby's American dream. And my buddy's oh my band opened it. 
so it's just stuff like this. I'm just like I was saying, like seeing your peers, you're not even out of high school yet. You're like 16, 17, seeing your peers do stuff like this. It's so inspiring. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wouldn't have gotten into journalism, writing if it wasn't for this. Definitely not. Yeah. I mean, people don't think about how many, you know, people involved in their super small local scenes go on to do things, you know, there's always one person that puts records out that like goes on to like be a business person because like it just came naturally. Like the people who put the zines together, um, you know, there's like a, a local economy within, you know, Mm -hmm. a bunch of kids essentially. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, you can see these through lines, like you mentioned, like people putting out records. Like I just did a book event with Gabe and Johnny Minardi, who uh, like works with Travis Barker and his label at um, Fuel by Ramen, Electra Now. And Johnny started off just with like being friends with the Fall Out Boy guys and the Academy Is guys, putting out like the first Academy Is EP, and that brought him to Fuel by Ramen, and he just took it from there. Um, or like Amy Fiddler, who was on your show recently, I saw mm-hmm. who you know yeah. her whole story like putting out all these records of the important Florida bands and, you know, um, you know, dashboard got huge. And like, you know, Amy just went from like a kid who was like 15 and doing a zine and like booking shows for like a high school internship to like putting together like a sick label and like, you know, her, her photo book, which is awesome. That just came out. There's like, there's all these interesting, um, these interesting through lines. It's kind of like an interesting parallel to like, the scene nurtured bands, but then if you had like someone who had star power, you know, someone like a Haley or a Gerard Way or a Pete Wentz, or if you kick it back into the 90s, like someone like a Gwen Stefani or something like that, who like came out of one of these like punk scenes, th- there was like a throughway where like some random kid, if they actually happen to have that charisma, have that like real star power, like th- that could set them on the path. You know, they do. And before, is, before social does, media, you needed that. Yeah, it does seem like um, I can't remember anybody from like my like local local scene that uh, I guess like Ace Enders is, is the closest like local scene guy who uh, who you were just like that guy's got it. You know, whatever that is, that guy's got it. Um, God, I was like, who was that? I don't know. Skip me. Come well, back. My my question is, and I, we've we've brought it up on the pod before, but I'm always interested in if anyone has like more insight on like what the current small scenes are right now, or like how that's working. Because like to me, thinking back of the days of like who was running booking shows was like that 15, 16 year old at the VFW, and the idea of like someone handing a, a 16 year old the keys to a, a venue, and then just like here you go, have a fun, sweep the floor when you're done kind of deal. Mm. Now, to me, thinking of those spaces being run by boomers, essentially, and th- just a boomer's perspective on like what the younger generations are now, I feel is so much more skewed than the generation ahead of them towards like our generation. I, like, I mean, I think I see what you're saying here. Um, which is interesting because I, I think that there was such a, a bigger gap in culture between me as a teenager and like the greatest generation who was, who was holding those keys to those venues. 
I guess you're right because now you have people who like, you know, the word like Woodstock age that are uh... yeah, and it, I think it, it is such a different thing because like the the Greatest Generation crowd, you know, are the ones who's like, oh, your kids go out until the street lamps come on, kind of deal, you know, <laughs> like kids just being kids, you know, just come home in one piece kind of deal, and now I feel like there is such a infantilization of You're like the right. younger generations oh my God. now so we were still being raised by our grandparents a little bit and you know no it, it, it's just like a thing where i feel like there is such a different outlook on the younger generation now and like look down upon with such disdain of like irresponsibility i think just because there's so much more access to that information via like the news like everything on the internet is news now and everything on Fox News, you know, is is how fuck the generation is, and and I feel like there's got to be a bigger disconnect between handing over those VFW keys to some sixteen year old. Uh, I mean, and it it's got me really curious. I don't know where I would find the answer to. Maybe we need to team up with like a the next. We'll stop having these music writers on. And start having like psychologists on and sociologists. But I'm really curious about that because it's. You know, I don't think I would hand the keys over to my BFW hall nowadays to these to these Zoomers. But I mean, and and maybe like the uh, the VFW hall show isn't just that now. Maybe it's also like whoever has like a YouTube channel within the subculture that's like talking about new bands, or whoever on TikTok is like talking about like new stuff. So like in some ways, like the young kids putting stuff on could also be that. And then in, in those instances, there is no like old person in the way. But um, yeah, I, I hope it's not. I hope that the 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 you know the, the Hamilton Street Cafe of today isn't like gate gate kept by like some you know boomer who you know I don't know who just wants to hear like a Bon Jovi band or something. Yeah, yeah, but that would be sick though. That would be sick. <laughs> um, the- yeah, I think I already solved it though. Yeah, what's that? Um, Andrew, you got a basement, right? So I haven't chose down there for the for the local community. I'm good. <laughs> to RATG live stream. I don't. I don't. Here's the thing. Um, I don't know if if this argument is like is like being complaining about the fact there's no video stores anymore. Um, it just feels like maybe we've just moved beyond that. Maybe maybe it's a different thing altogether now. Yeah, it's probably it's, a different thing altogether. That's why I don't know what it is. That now, now local bands perform on Fortnite, right? <laughs> There's still venues for local stuff. I mean, I just yeah, don't what's know wrong about with them. You, Dan? I don't know I'm about them because I'm a thirty-something-year-old dude. But I mean, I like, shit. I, I remember like when I like when I was like college age, and I was kind of in my like indie rock, hip hop, pop, and pop phase. You know, I remember like there was this venue in Montclair called the Meat Locker that popped up. Oh hell yeah! Was, oh, was what totally, a great place! Like, still there. I felt yeah, that's sick. And like I felt like a little disconnected from it, like going past it when there were like shows going on because like I had friends who lived there, but like the friends who I had at that point like weren't into that music. But I was like, oh, that's sick though that there's like a younger group of kids who were like doing this, you know. So yeah. you know, I'm sure I'm sure there's 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 other stuff. I just like we don't know about it because we're the old crew. Yeah, yeah. the Meat Locker did kind of. They kind of created their own scene, which was was pretty cool. And yeah, they I, had insane shit happen there. Oh, they really did. They, they like, had some wild stuff. I remember playing a show that uh, had a rap battle before it. 
Nice. It was incredible. The uh, one thing you mentioned about band in the bubble, which I think is really funny. Um, and it's a genre defining moment, Dan. We well, so what's funny about that is Andrew. Um, again, I'll, I'll I'll believe it when I see it. But right now on the books, we have Chris Black coming on uh, in the next couple weeks uh, from oh. the other half of How Long Gone, but also previously the manager of Cartel. So I can't wait to ask him about it, and I guarantee you he will not want to talk about it. <laughs> That's so funny, because I, I listened to How Long Gone. It's funny. I, I, just, I just saw them live, actually, in uh, Irving Plaza. Or not I, Irving. I, um, Webster, Webster I, and- I, was, I was there as well. <laughs> <laughs> so we have gone to a show together. <laughs> yeah, there we go. A live podcast in 2023. Uh-huh. That's, that's the local show. <laughs> They're about the only shows I go to. And I bumped into Brian from Run for Cover Records and had a nice little oh, evening sick. out with him. So, uh, but, but yeah, yeah so- what I was going to say is there's some episodes of How Long Gone where he'll, he'll just say, like, Oh, I used to manage a band. Yeah. <laughs> it's especially if he, it's like one of their like cool guests. He really it's, dances I, around <laughs> and he, he really leverages his musical past in, in very specific ways. And I really can't wait to get him to try to try to spill a little more. Cause I'm curious about it. Like that was a very interesting time in music as you wrote a whole book about it. And I had no idea cartel was as big as they were. The fact that they were on like CAA is insane. And yeah, there was so much hype around that band, and like, yeah, they they had one of the biggest rep agencies in the world. It's it's crazy, and uh, yeah, I mean we we had Jason uh, Stewart on as well previously, and he came on to talk about integrity, which was hilarious because then Dwid listened to the episode and then asked us to come on the podcast, which is like <laughs> the most insane thing. So now, yeah, rounding out that the how long gone. Uh, you know, duo will be will be a lot of fun, but I'm definitely bringing up "End in the Bubble" because that was such a fucking weird time in in alternative music. I Doesn't would want to know how how he like advised them because like I like from talking to like the guys in Cartel, they were like very leery of the idea at first of like you know what are people going to think of us? Is this going to be just like a shit show? <laughs> I, well, it's it was so funny. Will the the singer told me like. Yeah, we asked them for a million dollars, and like the, the, the guy was just like the MTV person was just like, "No, that's not how it works. We actually give you no dollars." I would actually I, I, when when I was interviewing Matt Rubano from Taking Back Sunday for the book, uh-huh. I told I told him that I was like, "Yeah, he asked for a million dollars," and the dude I heard him like gagging, and he's like, "I just spit out my cold brew." <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm really curious how that worked. But also, Cartel was making big money because Chris, as a manager, afforded like a Mercedes and a cocaine problem. So uh, they they were doing something right. Doesn't that just feel when when you think about the whole band in a bubble thing? Doesn't it just feel bad? It feels like the last <sighs> grasp at I money mean, I from like watching corporate like, America. Zoloft the Rock and Roll Destroyer on MTV too. Like, with Chris Caraba being, like, a judge for, like, the Mountain Dew, uh, like, Battle of the Bands or whatever. Feels weird. It's so strange. It was was very weird that, like, that kind of, I mean, Zoloff, like, being on on television, on cable, and being a part of, like, a musical competition is so strange. Like a band I would go, I would see with with Matt Pond, PA, and Triangle oh Shirtwaist. God, I love like at, why at wasn't the, Matt Pond, the PA, four four nine room in Trenton? <laughs> like so crazy. But 
we we should get into Fallout Boy. You, you pitched us a few records, and uh, you know, I think one of them was what Tell All Your Friends, which we surprisingly haven't talked about on this podcast. The other one was the Bayside self-titled, which I really, really wanted to choose because I don't know who else will ever pick that record so I can talk about it because <laughs> I do really love that record. But I want to keep I want to keep my unbroken streak of never listening to Bayside. <laughs> my my friend is married to their singer now, so uh, oh no way. There's the possibility of of having him on the pod one day, I'm sure. But and uh, Anthony was one of the best interviews for the book, and also he's so he's such a nice person. It's crazy. He was in incredibly helpful with getting me other interviews from oh, that's yeah. awesome. incredibly yeah so much love sending to matthew or I to, love... to, to, to anthony rather to anthony uh yeah in in that that record is so goddamn good my favorite thing real quick about bayside is they were on victory which is hilarious to begin with but there's uh that amir record <laughs> There's this in like one of the the heaviest tough guy songs ever. He says he listens to, uh, he listens to the Bayside CD and cries, uh, which is hilarious as, as a, is a that tough an guy lyric. lyric. Yeah, he, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, put Bayside on Bayside is the and I band. cry. <laughs> just track, just check tracks eight and nine. Those songs are about you. It's so good. <laughs> in like when keeping it real goes wrong, I think is the name of the song. So good, uh, I love it. That that the whole Long Island scene of bands referencing each other just can't get enough of it. But uh, it, it was you know it would made sense to pick, uh, you know the 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 band and the album that that helped name your book. It only made sense. So here we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So take us to your grave. I was listening to it earlier. I remember one of the things that drew me to this album when I was a kid like looking at the cover and i was just like man these are like the coolest guys ever like these <laughs> guys there are i can't think of four cooler looking guys than these guys on the cover of this album i was like i want to be that cool which is hilarious because looking back <laughs> on the cover do you still feel the same way 100 with, with the with the faux hawk <laughs> and the and the uh the librette piercing and the knit hat with a with the bill on it. I love the. Oh knit my hat god! Logo. Oh my god! And then, zoomies, such a such a zoomies look. Joe oh is kind of in the background, looking like uh, like Jane Doe, <laughs> the cover of Jane <laughs> yeah, Doe in the yeah. background. <laughs> <laughs> he it's has perfect. a shirt that has a Stegosaurus on it. Oh, it's so it's such a such an image of its time too. I do really like this image, and it is an iconic image compared to the the original rejected image for the cover yeah that one sucks i'm it's glad so you brought shitty. it up i've never <laughs> seen it's it. so bad it? it's just like a dude passed out on his uh bed it's, it's, it's chris wentz's girlfriend uh chris wentz oh my god pete wentz's girlfriend oh the, okay huh yeah passed out and there's just like a there's like band posters on the wall and like a uh like shelves of like action figures and toys and stuff yeah, and they uh, couldn't, and yeah they, this is a much be- better situation yeah, and like they couldn't get the rights to it because there was like a zillion copyrighted images with yeah. all like the action figures and stuff. Yeah. So they're like, they were like, no, you can't have this as the cover. So they're like, oh, let's just take a photo of the four of us sitting in the studio where we are, and that was it. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you obviously name like what was there a short list of names for your book, or did this one kind of come to you pretty much off the bat? Uh, the name, it started off Where Are Your Boys Tonight? It was the name of the 03 to 04 section. 
And okay. then I, I was just like, this is such a good name that I got to call it up. Calling it up to the big <laughs> yeah, leagues yeah. is going to be the, the title majors. of the book. Nice. <laughs> Bring it to the show. Yeah, I mean, so... I, I got my own stories, but where... What happened when you first heard this record? Like, how did that come to be? What did it do to you? Uh, Grand Theft Autumn was the first song I heard off of it, and then I went out and bought the CD. I was really into buying CDs as a kid. There was and, no other option at the time, <laughs> really. Well, I mean, I, if I wanted to, I could have downloaded all the songs on LimeWire. But I just like liked having CDs, and this was like early on in me getting into the music. So I like barely even had a CD collection. So I was like, no, I gotta be like. I gotta like support the scene, be real. I gotta like, <laughs> yeah. I gotta like get some CDs for, you know, for my room. So, you know, I got that, uh, that, uh, CD at the FYE at, uh, Woodbridge Mall in hell Woodbridge, yeah. New Jersey. Oh, hell yeah. I believe I was hanging out with my friend Greg that day, who I mentioned earlier. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Fall Out Boy was like, it, this was the era, the, the album didn't just come out. It had been out for a little while. Um, but, they still hadn't, you know, they hadn't done a cork tree yet. They hadn't blown up. So they were kind of introduced to me as like still kind of underground in a way, but they felt like the most legit band of the scene that was still underground where the, where you could still point to them as like, Oh yeah, this band's on the come up. And one thing that really sticks out to me about like hearing about them with like this new group of friends I was talking about, there was this kid, Mike, who had like really cool fashion and was into like cool bands. Like I remember he was into Finch a lot. I remember him just like, like walking into class, like sitting next to him. And he was like talking to this other person I knew. And he was just like, Oh, do you listen to fall out boy? And they were like, Oh yeah, I've heard of them. And he's just like, Oh yeah, their songs. And he names like grand theft autumn homesick at space camp. And I was just like, what are these songs? Yeah, what are, what I was, are like, you <laughs> saying? I was like, I was like, what is this? This is like, you know, I was like, a kid who was like before this mostly just listened to the radio and i was used to like like artists whose like the song title had to be the chorus so i was like what what I was oh, like, yeah. are you are you allowed to do that <laughs> like what are these song titles so sick yeah i think brand new was probably the first one that introduced me to that early on but mm -hmm. this record like really rewired my brain a little bit in high school yeah, of course uh, it did. My friend Kevin, I think, either let me borrow his copy or burnt me a copy. I, I forget. I, I have a copy of it somewhere, though. And, yeah, same deal with the song titles. I'm like, holy shit, I love that they're just crazy non-sequiturs. Um, and I think that just hearing Tell That Mick was, like, <laughs> the first thing that introduced me to, like, like spiteful lyrics i guess would be the best way to put it and i mean that that was a running theme for this era of music i mean you know stuff off that first brand new record is, is definitely up there uh but like just hearing the lines like breaking hearts has never looked so cool as when you wrap your car around a tree your makeup looks so great next to his teeth i'm like what the fuck <laughs> like I and then the, the, the screams talk. come in it's just like his, his teeth. teeth yeah, yeah like you can you can <laughs> tell someone this like it was just <laughs> it just broke my brain it was crazy and it yeah i don't know it it was just catchy yet aggressive and the lyrics were so i don't know they just felt like they were like another a level like a step up 
from most punk music I was listening to at the time. Yeah, it makes me think. I was interviewing um, uh, Manny Mustafi from Race Trader, the singer. He was a phenomenal interview for this book who gave me so much insight about hanging out with them because he was kind of like their manager in a way or just like a he was like really tight with them and throughout all these early days and he was t- telling me about one time when he was sitting with patrick and patrick was just listening to the starting line who were like one of the big bands on drive through at the time this was before fallout boy had gotten acclaim yet and he was just like yeah patrick was just kind of like listening to starting line to analyze this to be like okay, why do people like this and how can I do it better? And I mean, Fall Out Boy really did that with this album because like the whole thing of hardcore riffs, hardcore band mentality, but playing pop songs. Like right. Newfound Glory had done that before. You know, Newfound Glory self-titled or Nothing Gold Can Stay. That was like three, four years before this album. You mm-hmm. know, Saves a Day was before this. So bands had done this before. Fall Out Boy just did it better than those bands, yeah, you know? They had a better singer, yeah. a good, a, one of the best drummers in any of this music, one of the best lyricists in any of this. They just did it better. In a lot of ways, Fall Out Boy feels like um, they picked up where, like, the Get Up Kids left off in, like, the late 90s, you know, post um, something to write home about. You know what I mean? Like it felt more also something that I had never realized until this listen is how much this record and sort of um, this kind of pop punk borrows from like seventies glam rock. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. Like a lot of weird guitar stuff. Um, but a lot of the showy like did it. Like you could imagine Kiss doing that, right? (laughs) With with some some uh, choreographed uh, stage moves. I mean, what we need? They they definitely aren't shy about saying like how their influences are. Saves the day, get up, kids, big time, uh, which is like really interesting. And and this actually unlocked a memory for me that I wish I brought up, uh, you know, two years ago when we had Matt Pryor on. But I remember standing behind Matt Pryor at Bamboozle Fest watching Fallout Boy, uh, which was pretty pretty nuts. And I remember was giving this him... O- what was that? Was this 05 when it was still at Asbury? No, or no later? This, this would have been at... Uh, it was the year that... It might have been 08? Oh, so this was later. Maybe. Okay. But there was a year... I, I looked it up. There was a year that Fallout Boy and Get Up Kids played the same day at uh at bamboozle and i think it was also the same time where right before or right after fallout boy set they like left the stage and journey came on for some reason it was (laughs) those those fucking festivals are an acid trip it's insane none of it makes fucking sense but uh i i do remember that matt Pryor watched a part of fallout boy set and fallout boy not that great live at least not in a festival setting gotta say but it was, uh, I don't know. I've only seen Fall Out Boy play in the, in the strangest of situations, so. I mean, in this era, and like, the, al- the album Take This to Your Grave in, like, 03, 04, yeah, they, they were not a good live band, but it was all about the energy, you know? Yeah. Like oh, yeah. Joe, Joe spinning his guitar around. <laughs> Joe his, Joe, his weird, Joe, like, standing still one the uh, 360s. Yeah, yeah, and just keep <laughs> swinging his bass around. Like, yeah. and, 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 and having Andy in the band makes it all work because Andy is such a tight, 
drummer yeah, and such, he's a, such, such a showy drummer such as well. a good drummer but, yeah when i saw them at bamboozle they walked on stage with a bunch of like fake bodyguards that just stood with their like hands crossed in front of them the entire love it. <laughs> uh but yeah it's i don't know it's very interesting but yeah they definitely you hear a lot of them boiling down a lot of their influences into like a really digestible form of it. like they like smooth all the edges off a little bit yeah um in a way that's like hyper beneficial to them and you know clearly clearly it worked and and we'll get into it a little later because i want to bring up some of their like other records but i went through and kind of listened to a good portion of their the first half of their career i guess and there's some songs off of the two records after this, what Cork Tree and oh, what's the one after Infinity that? On Infinity on High. That are like straight up Newfound Sorry. Glory ripoff songs. It's pretty unreal <laughs> that they're like rewriting Newfound Glory songs like a decade later. <laughs> but I mean, they, Chad Chad screams with Pete on I know. Uh, Cork Tree, one of the songs towards the end. Yeah, which is yeah. definitely a vibe. But yeah, this this record, it was like very much before I really got into hardcore in a way that like i thought you know i liked that they were there was like some screaming on this record it is very funny that all the screaming on this record is just him going like Rah! <laughs> like there's, there's like no <laughs> words actually being screamed uh <laughs> it's just like the the myspace like raw xd emoticon going on <laughs> but uh it still made me like made me like look forward to those little parts Andrew, what what's your Fall Out Boy experience? Because um, you're you're a little bit older than us. I'm you're you're the boomer 70, in this in this uh, chat. Um, I was 22 when this record came out. Um, I I don't remember. I don't remember hearing it. I uh heard it in someone's car. It was a Corolla, if I remember correctly. <laughs> As they were passing by. <laughs> um, it's good. I didn't I didn't get into this record. I got into uh Cork Tree and then and then worked my way back. Interesting. Um it just wasn't I don't think it was what I was listening to at the time. I you know, I feel like I had found Neutral Milk Hotel around that time and like <laughs> sort of ruined a lot of what I could have been seeing. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Yeah, definitely a different vibe shift for that. I had gotten into Danielson family, if you're familiar. <laughs> I'm not. Oh man, you got to look that up. The yeah, guy, I mean, play, it, guy plays guitar in a big paper mache tree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fucking kidding you right now. I'm not. And that's uh, it, it's somehow weirder and and more avant garde than Nutrimoke Hotel. Uh, it's I mean it's up there, you know. Nobody's nice. playing a saw, but. Oh, I wish. I wish every band had a saw player. But I, I thought it was interesting that this was a band where, like, they really had to play down how popular Pete Wentz was, which was, like, interesting when I was kind of looking into this. Like, Pete Wentz was such a scene hero in, in the Chicago <laughs> area that, like, part of the reason they wanted all four of the members on the cover of the record was to not make Pete the front man. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so crazy to me that like number one the bass player is the star of the show but also it's it's an interesting dynamic where the lead singer isn't the primary lyric writer is always like an interesting 
kind of disconnect, I feel. I think that it's a very, it's a much smarter way of going about like the business of being a band. Yeah, that's probably not untrue. Unless you've got somebody who's like really itching to get something out. You know what I mean? Like, if the goal is to let's be in a successful band, like, let's all, all hands on deck, bro. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's definitely interesting to think that like the person singing the songs are not singing about their direct experiences like it's it's obviously a stupid thing to think but it's definitely like a natural thing to think Hmm. but it is it sounds like you got a problem bro (laughs) well uh when i when i was doing work with major league the pop punk band the guitarist was the lyric writer and the lead singer sang his lyrics and that was always like a, a shocking thing when people like found out about that. I don't know, but like I think that's most bands, right? I a mean, lot I guess. of bands. I'm sure it's a lot, but it's always usually like the default is like the lead singer is the the lyric writer. I think there were like a, a decent amount of bands like that because with because this stuff came from punk, and I think what gets you these interesting combinations of you know where you. You have a bassist vocalist or you know like in paul Poy's case a bassist who doesn't sing but writes lyrics it's just kids coming together and saying like okay i can do this oh you can do that i can yeah. do this this doesn't really make sense but who cares we're just kids doing a punk band mm-hmm. and when they get, get to stardom and you have these like popular bands you have these like really wacky interconnected relationships that's what makes it really interesting and yeah so much of what makes fallout boy fascinating and I think a lot of why the four of them have been such a consistent lineup over the years has to do with how it's not just all one person. Right? Yeah. Well, you also, uh, so um, I'm sure Andrew, not the case, but did you, uh, Chris, get tricked the into fuck? buying the quote unquote first Fall Out Boy record? Oh, I never bought that. I remember seeing it in stores. But from just like reading webzines and stuff, like I knew that it wasn't supposed to be good. And I, I like it was communicated to me very early on that this is like the knockoff first Fall Out Boy album. Yeah, because I definitely bought it, and uh, I actually re-listened to it today. Fall Out Boy's evening out with your girlfriend, <laughs> and if there's any, because I think, I think, um, oh my god, his name just flew out of my head, a uh, Patrick. Uh, I think he was, he wrote a lot of the lyrics on that record and they are bad. It's actually insane how different that record sounds to this. Like Patrick's singing is so, so worse. It's insane how bad it is compared to how polished it sounds on this record. God, dude, tell us what you really think. He sounds like a piece of shit. No, (laughs) um, he sounds like garbage. Yeah. what's Um, Damn. What's your band sound like? (laughs) (laughs) oh but yeah it it was uh it just it's just crazy how different they how did they write this like a year before and then put out this incredible like polished piece of music and also a big thing is andy isn't drumming on it on that first record and the drumming is you know leagues leagues apart like the drumming really makes this record i think in a lot of ways and not having them on that first record really really makes it sound really dull but it is crazy to think of like just what you know a little bit of time in between can really change how a record 
comes out. Also, speaking of recording, though, Andrew, you'll get a kick out of this. The, the, they recorded this record where the demos of Nevermind were recorded. Cool, man. You, you love Nirvana. But also, apparently, uh, <laughs> Reiner Maria, Promise Ring, and Death Cab also recorded there. So I don't know who any of those bands are. <laughs> What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> oh, what, were, what were like during your conversations with Fallout Boy, um, especially about like this time of their career, like did they have a different idea about like what the goal was than what the goal became? Like Cork Tree is such a different record, right? Like there had to be like a different mindset around this time. I mean, honestly, I, they wanted to be huge. I mean, I'll bring up um, Manny from Race Trader again. He's in the book, like he has this line where he's like, "Yeah, back when Fall Out Boy were a shitty local band who like didn't have a real drummer." I remember Pete. He M- Manny was like kind of managing them. He said, and he was like, "Yeah, like I see this path where you guys could be like kind of like an alkaline trio, like a really successful Chicago band." And he says, Pete looks him in the eye and he's just like, no, like we want to be Green Day, Blink-182. Like we're going to be the next Blink-182. So Pete was saying that in like 2002, you know? Yeah. I feel like starting out with that kind of attitude, though, can really set your band like on a path beyond, (laughs) you know, I mean, like if you have those kind of grand visions, like you're thinking in a much bigger picture when you're making decisions. I, every single fucking show I ever played... I said, this is my next step to the Grand Ole Opry. I never <laughs> fucking made it. <laughs> so suck a dick, Dan. Hey, listen, maybe your, your visions weren't big enough. I th- my, my visions are fine. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be the next Green Day if you're going to play the Grand Ole Opry. Everyone knows that. I think Green Day's got a great career arc. They're, they're doing all right. I mean, would you are say they Green- back? I They've don't know if they the, ever went in away. The zeitgeist a lot lately. See, they put out like that triple record, and I feel like that really was a mistake. Oh. That was like 15 years ago. <laughs> I know, and they haven't bounced and back yeah, yet. And There's... you've never gotten over <laughs> I've it. Never... <laughs> I... Listen, I was never that big of a Green Day fan, to be honest. But uh, yeah, it, it. I think a lot of stuff with this record, though, really, like I said, altered, altered how I thought about music. Uh, I mean, even listening to it again now in 2023 brain, uh, Especially my my fever riddled state the last three days where I was like literally <laughs> hallucinating. Uh, some of these lyrics and just like the the like the runs they go on with the lyrics are like so long and kind of separated in ways like I wouldn't you don't really think about in common pop punk songwriting, and it's it's kind of interesting that they'd write these and like kind of fit them in the way they do. It's it's unique a little bit in that sense. Are you talking about the ending of Saturday? I think there's a little bit of that. Uh, <laughs> like, there, there's just lines in there that just, like like I said, the, that line, like, breaking hearts has never looked oh. so cool as when you wrap your car around a tree. So your makeup looks say great. Like, again? There's a lot of commas in these lyrics, is what I'm saying. It's, Yo, my man just loves write... some run-on sentences, bro. He just writes poetry, and they just fit it into the music, is what yeah, happens. Yeah, Pat, Pat, would, Pat would take his lyrics, like, just written down in a notebook or whatever. And Pat is just such 
a musician mm -hmm. that he can see the words and visualize melodies around them and which words will incredible turn into great melodies and just pick out like through pete's journal and get the ones that but also pete would be like no 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 it has to say this you can't take out this word so some of the lyrics of the songs just are very clunky with how it's many like, words are crammed just... in there because I can't take this word out, so I'll just sing this line like a little bit faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it is interesting. I mean, Patrick is one of the most fascinating people I've ever met personally. Like he he is just on this like constant train of like self enrichment. That's very interesting. <laughs> um, I got to do some work with them back in 2018 or 2019, I think. I photographed a three day like press junket they did in New York. Which is a lot of fun. Which is why I say like I've only seen them perform in like really weird situations. Which oh was, shit! Like, Yo, this is this the, was this when Mania was coming out? It must have been because I interviewed Fall Out Boy at Dave and Buster's in oh my uh, God, did you in in, Man in Manhattan in Times Square on like the Mania press junket for Billboard magazine? No, this was for something else then. Uh, did Mitchell do something with them around he, that time too? Yeah, he did that the year before, which might have been for Mania. He couldn't do this time, and then he referred me, and that's how I got the gig. And uh, yeah, we did Seth Meyers, which was a lot of fun because we got to hang out in the SNL green rooms, and uh, Scott Ian was there to hang out because I think he was doing that band with uh, with Andy at the time. So I met Scott Ian and, and Meatloaf's daughter, which was a lot of fun. And then we did iHeartRadio and Sirius, and they did like a, you know, an kind of uh, in-studio performance. And then they did, um, what was it? For Good Morning America, they performed in Central Park in the morning, which is super wild. And uh, yeah, just like spending time with them were super interesting. Like Joe kept talking to me about New York real estate and... Uh, Pat, Pat was uh, teaching himself how to play the trumpet, which is why I brought up like the self enriching thing. Like he was, he was, he brought one of those little pocket trumpets from like musician's friend, and he would just he had his, he had like a separate green room, and he was just playing scales on a pocket trumpet by himself, while also using one of their like managers or tour managers to do like I forget what language he was learning, but he was learning like a non-standard language on flashcards at the same time. And he's like, it's the I, only way he's like the, oh, he's like the only way I can like be away from my family is to like, just be constantly learning about something else. I it's remember wild. we were, we were trying to set up a photo shoot, which became the Dave and Buster's thing. Yeah. And they were like, um, their, their publicist was like, we, okay, we've got like two hours, uh, you know, afternoon this day, um it's it's got to be like within this radius of Times square because that's yeah. where they're gonna be so i went through like a few places i remember i was like my first thing was like oh karaoke that would be so sick what about yeah. karaoke take him and to Koreatown like, or something she's she's like oh patrick is kind of weird with karaoke and i was like <laughs> all right i guess we're not doing karaoke she was like oh wh what about a museum yeah pete really likes art i was like yeah. okay maybe but we, we landed on dave and buster's yeah, that's that's good neutral ground. It's it's you know just as artistic as in a way it, it's the opposite of a uh, karaoke. Yeah, I remember because there was a, a Ryan McGinley show happening right near the hotel they were staying in. Because I think P 
Pete was asking me what cool art stuff was around, and I was like, oh yeah, there's a there's a you know there's a Ryan McGinley show at the Team Gallery. And he's like, oh, I have a few of his works. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, you want to hear you want to hear a funny story from the beginning of one of our uh, me and Pete's interviews? Yeah, diet. <laughs> so I had just fallen for a phishing thing and my my Twitter got hacked. Um it sucks because like you know I I do like so much of my job through Twitter and like this was like when I was working on the book and so much of setting up interviews was DMing people. It was this whole thing. So I was like really like distraught. Yeah. And I was like I had like my my publisher was helping me like get in touch with someone. This was before Elon Musk bought it. So I w- was able to navigate it. But like this I, I interviewed my last interview with Pete uh, when I was in this like three day meltdown when I was locked out of my Twitter and I was like, hey, what's up, Pete? He's like, oh, I'm just like, uh, I can t- chat for a while. I'm, uh, I'm just like uh, at my kid's uh, birthday. I'm just kind of watching my kid at a birthday party. Uh-huh. Um, and I was like, cool, cool. Yeah, this will be fun. Yeah. The past past few days, I've just been like uh, going back and forth, trying to like figure out how to unlock my Twitter. So yeah, I'm looking forward to chatting to you. Take my mind off something. And he's just like, oh, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I've got a few friends who are like really into crypto, and this happens to them all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I really can't say anything bad about them. They were all super nice and super cool, and like a really good hang. Like, uh, just me and Pete went up to like a bunch of interviews uptown, and we were. Ju- it was just like me, him, and like his security guard taking the the one train <laughs> up to, from like Canal Street, and uh, but like. It's interesting to see how a band of that level and that longevity interact with each other in the downtime is that they, like, don't. They, like, very much all kind of do their own separate thing. And I think for, like, the longevity of a band, like, sometimes you really have to kind of spread your time out a little differently. And, uh... Yeah. it 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 was interesting to see how stuff like that operates on that level. Yeah, I feel like you have to, you know, do it that way. Because, I mean, when you're, like, kids or, like, early 20s, you can do the whole thing where it's like, oh, we're best friends and we're in a band and we're in the van, you know, 300 days a year. And you can do that for a while. And then there's, like, the typical cliche shit of, like, oh, we're having babies, we're getting married, real life stuff. Um, But, I mean... Dang, you're summing up Wonder Years records right now. (laughs) (laughs) You just, I think it's just not realistic for people who are like well into their 40s to be just like hanging out like their best friends, even when they're not doing their band. Just like, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it, it's not going to work. You're going to burn out. Yeah. Just, I mean, think it's about not compatible. Like, think about how complex those relationships get when you, oh, like, yeah. when you're not just like friends, but you're essentially what family at that point. Uh, your your finances are tied together. You're oh, like yeah. your art is tied together. Um, you know that's got to be a tough. Well, I think a I think tough thing to navigate. Even at the time, I think they were all kind of living in separate places too. Like I Hell think, yeah, I think uh, Andy. The, they were talking about how he was selling his compound that he had. He like bought this Ooh. giant compound in like Oregon. I think it was. 
and that was like the party zone where everyone would go like hang out and just do whatever and he was selling that because he like got a girlfriend or something it was just like everything was changing for them it was very and i think joe was like splitting his time between new york and la and it's just it's crazy decisions you gotta make when you get older it's 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 wild but uh yeah, it was it was pretty cool to just like see how that all worked out. But the the interesting thing about working with them and them as a band in general is just how far they they branch out. Like they how far of a spread they have in culture. I guess is probably the best way to think about it. Cuz this was the band I listened to in high school and really loved and like really imprinted on on this record specifically. But when I said I was going to do a job with them, my sister thought I was cool, you know, <laughs> like my younger <laughs> sister who listened to the records much later than I did, you know, and it's like a, something my parents knew, you know, like they knew who Fall Out Boy were. And it was just like one of those, one of those things where it's like, oh, they are a household name in, in a crazy, in a crazy way to think about coming from this record to being a household name. It's, it's wild. Yeah. From all those pop culture references and that terrible rejected, uh, album cover with all the pop culture mm-hmm. they actually turned it into uh <laughs> something that everyone's parents and the younger sisters actually could do yeah so uh, that was kind of my next question though i'm sure i'm sure they're very happy they could lend you their legitimacy you know it really it really kicked in when i lit it. it was it was nice but like i said it was cool to work with a band that i fucking loved when i was in high school you know that's it was it's wild. Where do we kind of get in and get off on uh, on this? Because I I was kind of in and out, kind of on this record. I listened to Cork Tree a little bit. I was really stoked when it came out, but I feel like I didn't really listen to it too much. The way I would go back to this record, and then I don't think I, up until today, had never listened to anything beyond Cork Tree. Oh wow. That's yeah. Even though you were working with them five years ago. Listen, I they played the songs that I had heard on the radio, and I knew those songs. Uh, and I, but they honestly they changed so much from like that jump from like Folia do to uh, I mean uh, like save rock and roll or whatever. It, it's I'm a different band. Shocked how many Fall Out Boy records there were. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, and not because. You know, and they're all good. I I like skip through most of them. Um, they make great records. There's just very little of like original Fallout Boy left. Like the things that yeah. connected me to Fallout Boy, like when my you know initial experience was, just like all of that is gone. Yeah. Um. So you know, and it's a new band. It's it's adults now. Um, but I think like. I think Infinity on High is probably the last one that I go back to like regularly. Yeah, I think that record's great. There, there's some songs on it, but like the singles sound totally different than the other songs on the record in a lot of ways. I, I think that I really think it's I think it's cool to what they were doing later. I think um, I don't I don't know. It's 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 weird because like thanks for the memories and this ain't a scene. They just feel like singles. Like they feel different than a lot of the other stuff on the record. And it just didn't connect. It wasn't pop punk anymore. It wasn't emo anymore. 
And I think that's just where I was already like moving on to obscure grindcore records at this point. Yeah, I mean, for me, the first two, Take This to Your Grave and Quark Tree, are like forever seminal Chris Payne albums, you know, like mm-hmm. close to my heart. It's just like that combination of hardcore and pop. It's it's that's it for me. Like it's it's they basically perfect they did it very well on the first album and then on Cork Tree they perfected it. And from then on it was like, okay, where do we go from here? Plenty of where they went from there I enjoy, some stuff I don't go back to as much. And like you guys were saying, they they became a pop band after that. And like yeah. a lot of that is why there's still an artist that's still doing, you know, the Good Morning Americas and because they wanted to be a pop band and stay in that conversation and be part of that pop world. You know, they, yeah. they chose their path and they've owned it, you know? Yeah. And it, I gotta say the, the singles, I'm trying to remember what they played on those appearances. And I think they, it was like the big era of Uma Thurman and centuries. Mm-hmm. I mean, centuries was like the biggest song in the world at the time. <laughs> Uma Thurman to this day is a head scratcher for me on why it exists and why they, <laughs> use the monsters theme song in it it's it doesn't make any sense what to me. are you talking about right now oh one of fallout boy's biggest songs is called uma thurman and the chorus is the monsters theme song sick is this new to you i didn't even know that that's so sick i i would absolutely play it right now but there's no way in living hell it won't be a dmca takedown situation <laughs> um I had a I had an interesting moment at work the other day, uh, not the other day, but when the uh, when the Fall Out Boy remake of We Didn't Start the Fire came out, mm. <laughs> that was um, also on my list of notes too. And I have, or at least I have, uh, probably, uh, I Patrick's phone number from twelve phones ago, um, and I was like. It's right there. I know that guy. <laughs> Wait, you have you have Patrick Stump's phone number? No, like I did. I mean, I have like an old phone number. Obviously, I mean, I I'm not going to call it. But I see you call that right now. There's zero chance that's happening. Why? The off chance that he hasn't changed his phone number in twenty something years. We got his good friend Chris Payne on the phone. I think you should do it. No, you should do we're it. We're not going to do wow. it. Wow, the people want you to do it. No, they're not. Chris knows get... him. Yeah, what's your what's your uh, what's your text circle like? Do you have like a do you have a group chat with a bunch of old heads? I don't know. Chris, do you I have Patrick's phone of... number that you can cross-reference with Andrew's phone number? <laughs> I, I don't have Patrick's <laughs> phone number. Um, Wentz, Wentz I emailed with for this, and uh, Patrick I got, I got put in touch with uh, through Jonathan Daniel, his manager at Crush. I, w- I just I interviewed Jonathan for the book, and like, hey, you think Patrick would want to talk? And he, he got back to me like just right away. I was like, yeah, Patrick will talk, and it just kind of came out of nowhere, and it was great. But that's how that happened. Nice. Oh, I want you to call that phone number so bad. I'm looking at it right now. I'm trying to see if I have any of their numbers on my phone, and I don't. But I do have Joe Morrow's phone number, which I did not know I had. Paul? We can call him. We can get him on the phone right now. <laughs> no, you will go straight to voicemail. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I just ran into um, uh, Jeff and Ace from early November. They were at my book event with uh, Gabe Supporta and Johnny Minardi out in L.A. a couple weeks ago. Really? What were they doing there? They were on tour with Armor for Sleep. And also uh, oh, PJ, right. PJ from Armor came out. So, they, you know, they, they knew Gabe, so they came through. 
That's sick. Those are my guys. What uh, what do you think, Chris, of the uh, We Didn't Start the Fire? I tried for so long not to hear it. <laughs> I, but I, I heard it for the first time with my parents a couple weeks ago. We went down to Asbury uh, for like uh, the holiday shopping bazaar they have actually mm-hmm. in convention hall where bamboozle and skating strip used to happen mm-hmm. we go to that now but yeah it, it came on like uh their serious radio and i was like damn it i went like five months <laughs> five, five months without hearing this i Almost i just made it. i just really love the line shinzo abe blown away it's just such yeah, a good what else do my, I that, have to say? that's become my favorite fallout boy line what now. an insane thing <laughs> oh i love it what a, what a bizarre re- choice I remember when that song came out and people were like all chattering about it on Twitter. Someone was like, Weezer is so pissed off they didn't think of this first. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like a Weezer. Oh my God. It was such a, that's such a Weezer thing. Like that's 2023 so Weezer, such such a thing that they would do. Oh, such, absolutely. A, such a Weezer thing. Oh, man. Yeah, and I, I would have probably rather heard a, um, a Fall Out Boy version of uh, Africa by Toto. So. <laughs> Everyone chooses a different career path to get back on the, <laughs> yeah. in the pop culture. Choose your fighter. So, do we have any uh, any any favorites? Any least favorites on this record? You got any skips? What are you thinking? No skips. No, no skips. skips. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's always been Grand Theft Autumn for me. Um, always, uh, always just think of Tell That Mick as like a seminal punk album opener great album opener with the dial so tone yeah, yeah, yeah so good so of that vibe um and the uh the last song <laughs> another just fucking bitter ass song but pa- yeah. patron saying of liars and fakes is such yeah. a good closer i'm a great big, closer i'm a big uh b-side yeah, the second half the album second That'd half be. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay like i like the i like the hits i think it's front-loaded very similar in the way that uh that uh three cheers is mm. you know the first six are like the strongest songs you've ever heard and then the rest of the record gets pretty cool uh i think this record does the same uh reinventing the wheel is cool it sounds exactly like a lifetime song it does so that's like my <laughs> yeah has always been my it was like the gateway track for me i think they even like, reference it, it, it as like a lifetime ripoff song a little bit yeah it's like if lifetime wrote choruses like repeated the chorus <laughs> right yeah <laughs> it's weird you know and i and i think that's another cool thing that that doesn't get brought up in like the the uh, fallout boy conversation very often is that like fallout boy is directly responsible for all of us getting another lifetime record you yeah know what i mean and like maybe the best one i don't know it depends on who you talk to but i probably go back to it the most interesting how did that okay, happen I, I didn't know about that um yeah what chris what happened pete was a fan yeah yeah, so Lifetime were getting back. They had played a couple reunion shows in like 05, 06, and they wanted to do an album. And, you know, those guys were on Jade Tree back in the day, so they they were used to a certain sort of label. They wanted to do it the right way. They wanted to be with people they vibed with. And a couple guys in the bands didn't want to tour. I think the band in general didn't want to tour, because like some of them had like little kids. They had, were starting mm-hmm. families, like and most labels back then would have made you go on tour if they were going to pay for 
uh, to make an album for you. But Pete was the one person doing a label who was just like, I just want a new Lifetime album out in the world. Yeah. You guys don't have to tour. You can do whatever. I'll pay for you guys to make a Lifetime album. Did he Imagine put it out on, on Decadence? Such... Yeah. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That's such a great vibe of being like, it's worth $50,000 of my money to hear new Lifetime songs. <laughs> I don't even care how it does, yeah. you know? Well, that is what's uh, really interesting. And I, I skipped over this in my notes, but... This was also a really weird album release uh, in the sense that this was like an incubator program, mm -hmm. which it, it's kind of it kind of tarnishes the coding a little bit on its like punk, uh, you know, you know, punk cred. But Island signed them, so they were technically a major label band who allowed this record to be released on Fueled by Ramen to like give it kind of a more cred release yeah but like wasn't every label doing that no apparently yeah, that was the... everyone back then. yeah i Appar mean like drive through drive through is doing it for, for geffen uh... geffen right yeah but uh they weren't fuel by ramen i don't think was a subsidiary of island at the time no, no this was the first time a fuel by ramen band played ball with the you know yeah and the apparently it's the first time island had done uh, this kind of deal. And yeah, they basically incubated them and kind of like did like a cover, <laughs> like, you know, an undercover release on an, in on an indie with it in the contract that the next record will be on Island. And I mean, that paid off in dividends for them, which is insane. Because uh, what record was it that has Jay Z do the intro of the record? That was Fucking something I'd never heard before. Infinity on that's High. Infinity. It, that's it's so bizarre so to me. It's, it's so, so weird. good. So weird. I think I think Infinity on High might be my favorite Fallout Boy record, only because um I was like at a point in my life when that record came out that I was like ready to care about these bands again, and it was so fun that like in a very you know f four or five years I had been like I want to have fun again. Yeah, it uh, decadence was a cool era too. Uh, because didn't he also, like, launch Panic! at the Disco and everything as well? Yeah, that was the second uh, Decadence band. It was uh, Gym Class Heroes was the first one. Uh, the first Academy Is album has the Decadence logo on it, but it was bef they signed technically before Decadence was a thing, so they weren't actually signed. They were just straight uh, Fueled mm -hmm. by Ramen. But uh, yeah, it was Gym Class Heroes, then Panic. He, you know, it's all in my book. But yeah, he found Panic from just finding their shitty live journal uh, demos that they sent to him. And he just flew out to Vegas and signed them. You, that's, that's so wild. That's a wild uh, part of the book was just, I forgot how um, crazy, like, nine in the afternoon, five in the afternoon, like, that second single Oh yeah, like how how wild that was, and how far apart that was from where where that first record started. I still love oh, the leaked Panic at the Disco demos. They were really really good, better than the the actual record, I think. From which album? Uh, Fever you can't sweat out. There was a bunch of leaked like drum machine demos, and it's like more electronic, and that was right up my alley. Yeah, um, like the t time to dance. Mm, yeah, time to dance demo is fantastic. The uh, did you ever watch? Uh, this is this is the last note I have. Um, but did you ever watch the release the bats DVD? 
Uh, no, I've heard about that. It's it's, it's all like jackass stuff, right? Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. It's I think it's streaming on YouTube. I have the DVD somewhere <laughs> though, but I think it is streaming on YouTube. It is worth a watch because it's just it's got to be right around this time uh, this record came out. And if you ever want to see Pete Wentz drink his own piss in a hotel room, there's that. Uh, it's just them doing a bunch of really weird jackass shit, um, like riding tiny tricycles while like shooting Roman candles at each other. And uh, awesome. it's it's just very funny that this exists of like the biggest band in the world not too long after. This was Speaking around of- the time that, oh, that no, Pete did that the children's book. It was, mm. it was like an illustrated children's book called the the boy, boy with, with the, the thorn, thorn in his side. side. Yeah, by by Peter Wentz. Yep, Peter Wentz, <laughs> and they sold it in Hot Topic, which is yep. hilarious. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> also, I did. I do realize I do have someone Fall Out Boy adjacent in my phone. And that is, hey, Chris. Oh, yeah. Uh, my friend gave me his number, and he agreed to come on the podcast, and I just never made it happen. <laughs> so, <laughs> he runs a, like, a cat rescue cafe now in Chicago, apparently. Love that. I might got oh. my, cat, my cat right here, who's from a cat rescue cafe in Asbury Park. Oh, hell yeah. My, my friend ran that shop, actually. But, uh, yeah, hey, Chris, future guests on the pod, maybe eventually. Um, one thing that blew my mind time and time again was how much cash these guys were making from selling merch. Mm. <laughs> I really get into this in the Warp Tour 2005 chapter. Oh God, I bet. It, it wasn't, I mean, like MCR had a day where they made $60,000, which is insane. But even <laughs> like bands like Senses Fail and Hawthorne Heights, they were like, yeah, you know, good day. We make 30,000. Mm-hmm. Like insane. And because no one... Like kids didn't have credit cards back then. Yeah, oh, no, no one was paying with them. It was all cash. So <sighs> these bands just had abs- everyone thought they were drug dealers because they just had absurd amounts of like wadded up cash that they had to carry around and try to find some bank to drop it off on the Warp Tour. Yeah, the, wow. in the middle of nowhere, a lot of these Warp Tour, you know, parking lots. Mm-hmm. So they would do days without dropping it off. They'd be go- going into like, you know, Bank of America with you know eighty thousand dollars in cash and people would be like what the fuck that's Um, insane probably there were some people i'm sure there were some bad actors who were skipping off the top a little bit but uh hopefully not but probably happened but you know see that's this is why we need merch cuts no no band needs that much money (laughs) what about the venues who are providing them this area to sell that merch come on no one thinks about them what was the festival that was like in the parking lot of the Meadowlands? That was Bamboozle. Yeah. I did merch for the early November a year. They played Bamboozle and they sold a shirt that said, like, I saw the early November before they broke up. Yeah, that was their last show. That was their yeah. last show. Yeah. I saw um, their set that day. What was that? I said I saw their set that day. That oh, was their- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, I've never sold that much merch in my whole fucking life. That's um, wild. At the end, there were like extra small shirts, and that was it. Just make it a back patch, get it out of here. It's great. <laughs> what a time. Uh, that's great. Yeah. Chris, this is a lot of fun. Yeah, do, you any, fun. do you have any parting words? Uh, no. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. Uh, of course. Yeah. Hey, hit, hit it with your plugs. Where are your boys tonight in stores now? It's my first book. It was a lot of fun to write and 
chat with you guys about. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CPain on a plane is my handle. Hell yeah. You can follow me at Dambassini on Twitter and Instagram, dambassini.com. My new book is uh, When I Kill God, I Will Find the Spigot from Which He Meters Out Grace and Smash It Permanently Open. Uh, mm. Limited amount of copies still left over. Um, uh, but yeah, so get you. I did inventory recently, and there's there's not too many of them left over, and there's even less of No Invite Volume 10. So uh, get them while you still can. Andrew, what do you got to plug? Um, I can plug um, Chris's Instagram. I just looked. Um, on July 6th at 10.43 a.m., I said, hey, Chris, I'm reading the book right now and love it. So <laughs> that was it. I have nothing else to plug. All right. Really well, nice, you, uh, we have a Patreon. Oh, yeah. Uh, patreon.com slash run into the ground uh we recently opened it up to us we got a seven day free trial so you can go on there no obligation check it out for seven days try to cram in all 30 episodes or so of a uh, bonus material we got on there but uh if you dig it please stick around it's the easiest way to support us uh patreon.com slash run to the ground run to the ground on instagram run in number two the ground on x.com and uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun, Chris. Uh, Seven music writers on is one of our favorite because they just just get it. Because they're the coolest people in the world. So true. true. So true. Facts. Everybody else. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs>